So last night we started with the question, what it's all about, and that was part one. And we get to look into part two today, or again, in the words of the 11th century theologian Anselm, who wrote that wonderful book, Why Did God Become Man? Well, we could say, what's the greatest gift? What's that gift we all really want and that we look for in all the small gifts that we're given? How big is our view of what the Son of God came to do? How big is your view of what the Son of God came to do today? So we sang, just sang, Away in a Manger, and that last stanza is incredible. Be near me, Lord Jesus, I ask thee to stay close by me forever and love me, I pray. Bless all the dear children in thy tender care and fit us for heaven to live with thee there. And the Son of God came for nothing less than to fit you for heaven to live with him there. There's a lot involved in fit you, isn't there? And when it speaks of heaven, it ultimately means when heaven descends to earth and makes earth heaven, a new heavens and a new earth. So C.S. Lewis, in, you know, it's so insightful in his last battle when you have to go through a dark, dank stable of animals in order to open the door into the new heavens and the new earth. And so the last chapter of the last battle says, For them it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. And our little lives, as significant as they are, our little lives are just an introduction. It's hard for us to get our minds around that, that your life here is just an introduction. It's the beginning of the great story that Jesus came to open up for us. But however, Scripture says a, a, a good bit about it, a good bit about this great story and Revelation 21 and 22 is the high watermark of what scripture says. And yet that incorporates a lot of Isaiah and Ezekiel and other passages. So Jesus comes to rescue his fallen people from their sin and this broken world and then transform this them, his people, into a holy, glorious people and this fallen, broken world into a holy, glorious world portrayed, as we see in Revelation 21 and 22, in this amazing city, temple, garden like Eden, but perfected. And so we're actually gonna read today from Revelation 21, starting at verse nine. So a little bit longer, I just think we need to read it. So Revelation 21, nine. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great mountain and showed me the holy city, 
Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and at the gates 12 angels and on the gates the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed on the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia, its length and width and height are all equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper while the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth Chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst, and the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there." They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And no longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light or lamp of sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever, and the grass withers, flowers fade, and this good word endures forever and finds its root and grounding in the coming of the Son of Man from heaven to earth. Amen. I want to say five things. First, Jesus came into the manger in Bethlehem in order to give you glory. So one of Jesus' angels shows John the bride, the wife of the lamb. And the bride, the wife of the lamb, is the holy city. 
that comes down out of heaven from God. Primarily, therefore, these physical descriptions are symbolic. The holy city is the church, primarily, and incredibly, this holy city is described as having the glory of God. It has, possesses the glory of God, and that glory is described as a radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal, though a jasper being a multicolored stone with a variety of designs. And so Jesus came in utter humility to beautify his bride like this. This dazzling description of the city is the brightness, brilliance of Jesus's redeemed bride pretty incredible that that's what we look like in Christ and will one day. It's because the Son of Man came to redeem her, the bride, that God shares his glory with her. And so how staggering that is, is when we recall such verses as Isaiah 42, 8, where God says, I am the Lord, this is my name, my glory I give to none other. I'm jealous for my glory, and yet in the Son, in glory, he shares it freely with his bride to adorn the bride for his Son. Dr. Kelly says it so well, God's glory, which is the origin of everything that is beautiful, literally comes down to radiate into the church its loveliness and splendor. Dr. Kistemacher, just as the sun beams its light to the moon, which in turn reflects the light of the sun, so God's glory illumines the church, which in turn diffuses its light around it. The glory of this beautiful bride, the magnificent church, is compared to the city walls and the foundations that are composed of these precious radiant stones, every kind of jewel, and he's exhausting his, uh, his knowledge of, of jewels and stones here. Jasper and, and gold that shines like clear glass. Sapphire, agate, emerald, onyx, carnelian, chrysolite, beryl, topaz, chrysoprasade, jacinth, amethyst, gates made of pearls, streets paved with gold like transparent glass. It's meant to be stunning, even overwhelming. When, You know when you look at your Christmas tree at home, all those lights and colors are a faint glimmer of what John is beholding because we're designed for beauty. We're drawn to beauty. It's part of being image bearers and Jesus came to make you this people of beauty in this place of beauty. And so second, he comes to give us safety. He comes to give us safety. And so the dimensions of the holy city, the beautiful bride, are to be taken symbolically. They convey this wonderful truth. So the city has this great high wall. It's 144 cubits tall, or about 72 yards tall is the wall of this city. I mean, it's crazy tall. However, it's not nearly tall enough if the city is 12,000 stadia, because 12,000 stadia tall would be between 1,300 and 1,500 miles. And so it's all excessive and totally out of proportion because it's conveying a spiritual truth to you. 
And so this incredibly high wall stands for safety and security of the church and the new heavens and the new earth. You're unassailable, you're impregnable. Nothing can get at you, but it's not to say that here you're defenseless. It's like that wonderful hymn that says, yes, I to the end shall endure as sure as the earnest is given, more happy but not more secure, the glorified spirits in heaven. Ultimately, you are this secure in Christ. Though in the short term, many things can get at you but the saints in heaven experience this fullness of security and safety in the presence of God. And the 12 gates with the names of the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 foundations with the names of the 12 apostles, they point to the church belonging to the whole family of God from both the Old and the New Testaments, built on the firm foundation of the apostles and prophets, and all now safely gathered in. Everyone's present and accounted for, and none are missing, and they're all solidly on the promises of God that root themselves from Genesis 3.15 all through scripture. And the fact that the 12 apostles are the apostles of the Lamb implies that we're free from guilt and corruption. We didn't arrive to this city because we were spotless in ourselves. We were washed by the blood of the lamb and that's why we belong and know we belong. You're safe. And then Jesus came third to give us close fellowship, close fellowship. John sees this city coming down. It's always coming down because God is always coming down. Christianity never was about us ascending to God or climbing the ladder to God or improving ourselves to get up to God. That never was good news. Christianity has always been about God descending down to us, reaching down to us when we were incapable of improving ourselves. The incarnation is the epitome of that. The city coming down out of heaven from God symbolizes grace. And so Jesus' purpose is to bring us into the wonderful intimacy communicated by the husband-wife relationship, this bride adorned for her husband. Like Ephesians 5 says, Jesus came to lay down his life at the cross, to wash her, to present her to himself in splendor without spot or stain or blemish. We're free of all that. And this close fellowship is symbolized by the dimensions of the city, So it's this vast city, 12,000 stadia, meaning it's up to 1,500 miles tall, wide, and long. This enormous city to indicate that all God's glorified people from every tribe and language and people and nation belong to it in Christ. That none are left out of it. And the symbolism of the number, 12,000 being 12 times, 10 times, 10 times, 10, it just is John tripping over himself to say the full number, the perfect number, the complete number is there. And it's four square, meaning its dimensions are all equal 
It's a cube. In the ancient world, the cube was the symbol of perfection, but it's even more than that because you know that in the tabernacle, in the temple, the holy of holies, that inner sanctum, that inner court where the ark was located, where God sat enthroned over the ark, where the cherubim encircled him, where the high priest was only permitted to enter one time of year, and that with blood, that holy of holies was equal in all its dimensions. It was a cube in the inner recesses and intimacy of fellowship with God, and therefore the significance is that the city being a cube is now for the glorified saints, all of them are the holy of holies, always in God's immediate presence, always before his throne, always enjoying unbroken fellowship in the Lamb. So there need not be a physical temple for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple and therefore the purpose of Isaiah 7:14 and Matthew 1:23 is fully realized Jesus is Emmanuel God with us and that's what he came to open up for you that God would dwell with you and you would be the holy of holies always in his presence and then fourth he came to give us light light and so Isaiah 9, 2 says, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Isaiah 60, verse 1 says, arise, shine, for your light has come and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. So now in the new heavens and new earth, the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light and its lamp is the Lamb. God and the Lamb provide light. There's no need of created luminaries for they are the direct light of the new heavens and new earth. And it refers to God's glory, but light in scripture is even more than glory, as great as that is, it's holiness, being free from sin, the tug of sin. It's life, it's vitality, it's communion, it's fellowship, it's warmth, it's all of that in scripture. The sunrise today is just a glimpse of that glory and that light that bathes the new heavens and the new earth, a direct reflection of God's own essence. And God and the Lamb are the source of all light and will be awash in it. The gates of the city are always open for there's no night and there's no one unclean or who practices detestable things prowling about to damage and destroy only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. He includes that in this description of the new heavens and new earth because his point is not just to describe glory. His point is to tell us who read, now is the day of grace. Now is the time of salvation. Repent and believe now. And the nations of the world and the kings of the earth come into this light and bring their glory into it. And it's this picture of the redeemed of every tribe and language and people and nation, washed by the blood of the lamb, they bring in their glory. And it's this sense that it's their, utter, uh, their unique preparation, their renewed character, restored ethnicity and culture, their distinctive gifting and potential, they bring it all. It's the idea that God loves these distinctives and loves this uniqueness. 
And the idea is human flourishing, becoming as God intended us to be in the garden, walking in the light as restored image bearers, putting who he's created us to be to his service. And therefore that stanza five of once in royal David's city, though I do love the hymn, I quibble just a little bit, though you can't say everything in a hymn. But in the fifth stanza it says in that poor lowly stable with the oxen standing by, not in that poor lowly stable with the oxen standing by, we shall see him but in heaven set at God's right hand on high, when like stars his children crowned, all in white shall wait around. It's a beautiful picture of being in glory, like stars shining like Daniel 12 says, and yet we'll do much more than wait around. It's this flourishing of activity and worship and labor and discovery in the new heavens and the new earth. And so that leads to point five, he comes to give fulfillment. And so now the garden image is added to the city and the temple, it's paradise restored. All that Adam lost is now regained. Nothing, nothing is thwarted. In fact, the entrance of sin only augmented the beauty of it because now it's robed in grace. And so Dr. Kelly says, ever since God kicked Adam and Eve out of Eden for their sinful rebellion, humanity has been homesick to return. And we know it, there's this deep sense of wanting to be home. You, you taste it a little bit when you've gotten home for the holidays with family, and yet you know in your heart there's just ache for a true home. And ever since God exiled Adam and Eve because of their estrangement and sin, we've ached for home, for Eden. But in the new heavens and the new earth with paradise restored, we're back home, we're in the garden of Eden. The environment we're created for now perfected. And so like Eden, there's a river, as Psalm 46 says, the river is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place where the most high dwells and it flows from the throne of God and the lamb because the throne is always the source of life. The living God sends out waters of life bright as crystal. Jesus said to the woman of Samaria, so laden down with sin and hurt, so thirsty for satisfaction and identity that he came to give her a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And she believes him and this little stream rushes out from her and she's a changed woman. And what we see here in the new heavens and new earth, the garden regained is that little streams become a great river flooding from the throne. And on either side of this clear flowing river that come from the throne, on either side of this great river is the tree of life, and yet it's not just one single solitary tree, now it's a whole forest on either side of the river, a forest of trees of life, and not just with one kind of fruit, but with 12 kinds of fruit each month. How do you measure months in eternity, but Each month there's 12 kinds of fruit from a forest of trees of life and it illustrates that truth of Romans 5.20 where sin increased, grace abounded much more. Adam and Eve rebel against God but instead of shrinking the blessings, God multiplies it in his son. 
When God exiled Adam and Eve from the garden for their sin, he stationed a cherubim with a flaming sword to guard access to the tree of life. And man was under curse, so he couldn't take the fruit. He couldn't enter. But now there's no curse. The lamb, the new Adam, came to take the flaming sword in our place. It came down on him in judgment. And now access to the garden is opened. And so if Eden was vibrant with life, so much more is the new Eden with a forest of life-giving trees and their fullness of the variety of fruit being born each month. It's a way of describing the new heavens and new earth. Though it's eternal, it's not static, it's not boring, it's not monotonous, but rather full of movement and vitality, getting better all the time. As C.S. Lewis said so famously, further up and further in, in the last battle. And remember, Adam and Eve were charged to work and keep the garden. So in glory, there's productive, meaningful, fulfilling work, advances, discoveries, growth, development, it's fulfillment. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations, but there's no curse, so there's no more sickness and decay. So in what sense is it healing except to say that there's this robustness and wholeness and well-being and joy like we've never experienced before. We're fully and finally healed of all the damage, all the difficulty, all that besets us, fully and finally healed. All our needs are supplied. Philippians 4.19 hits its highest point, and my God shall supply every need of yours in riches and glory in Christ Jesus, and blessing of blessings, we see God's face. And all through scripture, since the fall, man can't see God's face and live. It would disintegrate him. And yet in glory, with God sharing his glory with us, we stand before God and we see him face to face. There's nothing between us, there's no separation, there's no barrier, there's no hurdle, there's no stain. We look into God's eyes and see him face to face. It's perfect communion, transparent relationship, profound knowing, deep friendship. It's 1 John 3, realized, but when he returns, we shall be like him because we will see him as he is, transformative. And his name is written on our foreheads. And God seals his people in Christ. Baptism is a sacrament of that, but in glory it's reality. There's no doubt we belong and that we're welcomed home. His name is stamped on our foreheads. And there will reign forever and ever, grace upon grace. Adam and Eve gave up their job and pursued something else. But in Christ, in the new heavens and new earth, we recover our reigning role with Christ on his throne. And that's what it's all about. That's the magnitude of the work Jesus came to achieve when he was born in that little dark stable in Bethlehem. Nothing short of this tremendous project is why the Son of God became man. It's the gift of gifts, the one we all really want. And this is the big story that makes sense out of your little story, and nothing else really will. And so might this story stun you, shape you, and shine more into your life even today, even this Christmas day. May God add his blessing to you. Amen.